And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, uh, we're going to first let you know that, Doc, there's still proof of life. Uh, We are recording this at the end of July. So she is like... Hours before lockout for her Dragon Con fantasy lit track director stuff, where you know she has to finish her job. So, yeah, she is operating on no brain cells at this point. So she's sleeping it off. Um, and Nick is traveling home from some boat driver course for the uh, Border Patrol. Um, he lived, he didn't drown. That's always a plus. But we will have proof of life of him again. Uh, and if you listen to the Iron Age hashtag uh, podcast, the marketing podcast with Nick. Um, we've interviewed them before uh, on their podcast. Nick went over there and got nerdy with them. So that's always fun. And I will share that on our social media so you can give that a listen. Because uh, sometimes we talk outside of our own house and uh, with other people. Weird how that happens. I don't I don't like to people too much, though. What about you, Andrew? Or Andrew Howard? Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm fine with it all. I'm easy. Okay. So... Our guest today, if you notice the name confusion, is Howard Andrew Jones. I saw the Andrew right in the middle, and it just caught my eye, symmetry and all that. But, uh, Howard, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? Well, sure. I'm, uh, I'm mostly here to promote my new Bane series, uh, Lord of a Shattered Land. But uh, I've been writing professionally for about 12 years, and uh, I love all sorts of cool stuff. What kind of cool stuff? Well, let's see. I grew up watching the original Star Trek uh, because that was the only cool science fiction or fantasy on television at the time. And I could still identify about any episode if I walk into a room and hear just a couple of seconds of dialogue or music. So there's a weird superpower. I grew up uh, playing the original Dungeons and Dragons, uh, reading Chronicles of Amber, uh, Fritz Leiber's Lankmar, and of course, Conan the Barbarian. Let's see. I love uh, tactical and strategic war games. Uh, I love karate. I've been practicing since I was uh, 25, which is, uh, gosh, 30 years. Um, yeah, I'm not that old. No, no, I'm not that old. So uh, did you like any of the Conan remakes that they did? Um, you know, I learned to say if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Okay, well, you grew up reading it. Did you like the Schwarzenegger version? Yes, yes. I mean, he's not really the Conan from the books, but I still think it's a cool movie. So, yeah, yeah, I dig that. So I I had a very kind of enlightening aha moment experience when I got I got a tattoo when I got back from Iraq. The guy that designed the tattoo was somebody in my unit. He was going to school to be a graphic artist. Um, he got called up out of the IRR, deployed with me in 05 and he didn't make it home. So what was supposed to be a personalized design that was going to go on the back of all. So we had a company t-shirts we were going to have made on the front was going to be the company logo. And on the back for our fire team was going to be the personalized art that he made for all of us. Um, and I took that art when he passed away and I thought about getting a t-shirt, but I just didn't feel, feel right. So I got it tattooed on my arm, but I wanted the drawing to be as close to what he drew as possible. So when I went to the tattoo artist, one of the things he told me is like, JR, you know, I'm going to honor this art, but I will tell you that when you transfer art across mediums, sometimes you have to make allowances to make it work. 
So for this instance, the art was flat, designed to go on the back of a t-shirt. He had to adjust for the fact that your arm is obviously curved, right? But that applies to when you take books into movies, movies into books. But you know what I mean? Like when you transfer one medium to the other, sometimes there are just differences. And I think that applies to the movies, to the books. And so I, I think sometimes people get upset of things that you just had to do, right? When you when you transfer, you know, like for instance, when they were making the original Star Treks, if you were writing a book at the same time, you could do a lot more with words than they could do with technology to film it. Sure. So that kind of stuff all plays in. And I think sometimes purists get bent out of shape and they forget, you know, when it's a different medium, there are different allowances. But for me, for instance, I'll give you a, for instance, I loved the movie Starship Troopers. Everybody that read Heinlein first hates that movie. One, I can accept that it's just a campy movie and I love campy movies. The beer, the better, right? Like I'm all about it. But also like, that's how I found Heinlein. I watched the movie and I'm like, someone said, oh, did you read the book? Uh, what book? And then I went looking and I found sci-fi, mill sci-fi at its inception. And I'm like, this is cool. So I never yuck someone else's yum because ultimately, even if you think one is better than the other, if they find the other first, they can find you after, right? Like I, for me. I, I completely agree. Yeah, I groove on the movie. I mean, I don't know that it feels as much like the real Conan, but it's still a cool sword sorcery movie. And the same for uh, some of the comics. You know, a lot of people found their way to Conan and the great Robert E. Howard stories by reading the comics, some of okay. which some of which are much better than others. But I really dig a lot of them. And some some purists, some purists hate them. Um but there's some great stuff in there and it's vibrant. And it gets people excited to go find the real stories or maybe they just groove on these and that's fine too. So did you like a lot of Robert E. Howard stuff or is it just the Conan? Oh no, I'm a huge Robert E. Howard fan. He's one of my favorite writers. So yeah. I mean, if, uh, if the camera were on, I could pan around and show you, I have a pretty massive Robert E. Howard collection. Okay. So uh, I actually found, um, so Nick Cole wrote a book. He's an, he's an indie author, but he wrote a well, he, I guess he wrote Trap Hunt too. He did an anthology short story. Red rabbit presents was the name of the anthology weird name for an anthology, but he actually wrote a play on the Conan one where Conan was a cyborg. And so, you know, it was the, the, that, the Conan was a misinterpretation of like it's whole number or registration number or something. But I've seen people take like some of that kind of iconic stuff and make a modern retelling of it. And I think some of that works. So I'm not opposed to it. Did you see that uh, there's a small press that bought the rights to the uh, to the Conan universe? I am not aware of that. And I was for a while there, I was like working with the Conan people to uh, I was editing all the new uh, Robert E. Howard fiction. Uh, well, not from Robert E. Howard, but Robert E. Howard world fiction, parallel worlds. So, I mean, uh, all the stuff, the prose fiction that was appearing in the back of uh, the Marvel Conans, I was editing that. I had not heard that uh, some small press had uh, gotten a hold of rights. That's interesting. I don't, like, I haven't seen it myself. Doc Seska, she's one of our co-hosts. You, you, if you've been to Dragon Con, you probably, and she's uh, tight with a lot of the Bane people. Um, so you, you, they've, you've probably at least heard of her tangentially. Um, she knows the small press that did the, um, they got the rights to it. So I am not sure. I'm not sure who it is, but I, I do know somebody bought the rights to publish more Robert E. Howard Conan stories. Oh, um, is it Titan? Is that what you're talking about? The the English publisher? Maybe. The Steve Sterling, um, uh, Steve Sterling novel. Uh, gosh, earlier this year, uh, Blood of the Serpent, I think was the name of it. And it's on my to be read list. 
he's a good writer, so I'm expecting it to be pretty cool. I'll have to I'll have to get back with you off air uh, from Doc, and then for all of you listening, um, if I can find out a link to whoever, let me make a note of that. If I find a link to whoever got the rights, um, I will link to that in the show notes. Um, so I think I think it's kind of I just think it's cool that some of the um, some of the older properties are getting bought up and, and revitalized for modern audiences. Um, I know uh, Three Ravens Publishing bought some of like the IP from uh, Steve Jackson Games with the Car Wars and uh, the Star Chronicles or Star Something, which was a 1980s um, computer game. Um, they bought the rights to that. There's a few others that other companies. So like some of the older properties are being bought up and like brought forward because it's it's not even so much I think that they're that commercially viable. It's just the authors grew up reading or playing. And so it's just something they're passionate about, you know? So they they said, hell yes, I'll write that <laughs> just because. I mean, that would be the – they grew up on G.I. Joe and Stargate. So if either one of those companies approached me and said, do you want to write a novel, I wouldn't even blink. I'd be like, hell yeah, I do. I've I wanted do. this all my life. Oh, I know what you mean. I'd probably yeah. still jump at the chance to write a Star Trek, the original series, uh, uh, at least a couple of stories if someone were to ask me. I don't know if I'd want to write an entire book, but – yeah, I loved that show. Are they still writing in the original uni- series universe, like the uh, um, the Kirk one? Yeah, yeah. I've got a friend who uh, writes for him, David Mack. He just had one released uh, late last year. It's another one on my to-be-read list. It's sitting over there on my bookshelf. He's a, he's a really nice guy, really talented one, and, man, does he know his trick. I, uh, I can't remember his name, but there's an author that I met at RavenCon in 2016, um, and he's got a couple of pseudonyms because he writes kids' books um, and adult fiction. So he's written for Warhammer, Star Trek, and um, uh, Star Wars, and one other iconic property. I can't remember what the fourth one was. And I said, so all the IPs he's written in, which one was the most uh, intense? And he said it was a tie between Warhammer, 40K, and Star Trek because their fans are fanatical. They could tell you the precise bolts on the number of this, you know, this away ship had, tw- you know, whatever. Like, they're that nitty-gritty. He's oh, like, wow. there are people that will build 3D models of these various, you know, Warhammer or Star Trek stuff. And if you get the details wrong, they will know. Like, uh, sir, that bathroom is actually a deck lower. You got that wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that level of insanity. Wow. I, respect I, it, like, I, don't I don't know it to that depth. Like I said, I know the episodes and I love yeah. the characters, but man, I do not know that. I haven't memorized any schematics or anything. Wow. I mean, on the one hand, people make fun of that kind of reader, but I'm just like, you know, hey, I dream of writing something good and like something that gets people that passionate. Like, that is the dream right there. Oh, yeah. Man, I would love to turn up to a convention someday and see a line of people wearing uniforms from one of my uh, one of my books. That'd be great. It's like, oh. We had one of our old, uh, one of our former co-hosts when we were the sci-fi shenanigans, he had to uh, step back from writing to get a, a job with like insurance and stuff. Funny how sometimes adult responsibilities get in the way of the passion. Oh yeah. But uh, that was, we used to joke about that was his fear. He'd go to a convention someday and someone would ask him a question about one of his books and he wouldn't remember. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you write so many worlds, like once you, you're done with it, you kind of move on. But for the audience, like they still live in it after you're on your third or fourth series or whatever. And so, like, you know, I could see that being a thing where you're like, uh, actually, sir, that is not what he looked like. You got this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The the trick would be to go all Galaxy Quest and tap into the audience when you have questions. 
Uh, have you seen that movie since you're a Star Trek fan? Oh, Galaxy Quest? Yeah, multiple times. Yeah, it's that's, a good uh, movie. That's a blast, yeah. Supposedly, they're going to do a sequel, but I think they've waited so long. I don't know how they would manage. Everyone's aged. I mean, it's been what, a decade at least. Oh, my goodness. Well, and they lost one of the most important cast members, right? So yeah. what can you – yeah, they waited too long. That's the one thing is, is you know, some of those iconic things don't become – iconic right away like i don't know how successful it was in box office but it's sort of got a cult following now but when that happens later oftentimes the momentum when it's finally there like the audience or the the actors just aren't aren't fit to play those roles anymore right right so i don't know like that would that would be the issue if they try to do like a firefly reboot now i i still can't believe that well, I can't believe the original Star Trek was canceled, but I can't believe that Firefly didn't get a, a longer run. But yeah, if they were going to reboot it, why is it taking so long? There was such intense interest of it in it within a year or two. They could have snapped it up then. I, I just don't understand. But there's a lot of things I don't understand. Well, I, all I know is Fox Entertainment is where good movies go to die. <laughs> good yeah. movies and shows, they go to die. And there's a special place in hell for the lady that canceled Firefly, but... Anyway, so the next part of the introduction, because we wandered far in the field, this is what you asked for, audience, when you said you wanted unscripted. You wanted us just to riff. But uh, the next part is how we found them. So I actually found Howard through Sean um, Korsgaard, I think is how you say his name. Um, he is the public relations and marketing person for Bain um, Books. And he mentioned that they were, you know, looking to get some interviews for this, their new author. And it sounded up my alley because he knew I was a history nerd. I have told the joke where I unsuccessfully tried to convince my wife to name our son Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus the Elder, otherwise known as the man who defeated Hannibal at Carthage. Um, I am a few fan of the Punic Wars people, so when he had this book coming out, uh, Howard did, and we'll get to why this is germane later, uh, he knew I would want this interview, so he set this up for us, and I'm grateful. Um, Although we are going to be breaking one of the one of the um, the rules of the podcast, I am not allowed to interview anybody that talks history unless I have supervision. Because one time Declan Finn and I talked history for a three hour podcast, and people got bored and fell asleep. We had fun, and that's all that really matters. <laughs> I am a history nerd, so all right. Before we start talking too much, I have to do the religion question, sir, or they will take away our title and we'll have to rebrand, and nobody wants that. So. The religion question, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Oh, I'm sorry. Star Trek original series, hands down. And really, so, only, really only the first two seasons of the original because the third season kind of got lobotomized. So what did you think of the original uh, Captain before Kirk took over? Oh, I can't remember. Pike, oh, Captain Pike. Pike, well, I mean, there's only one um, one episode with him in it, and it's, it's good, Um but I, I like Shatner's portrayal of the captain better. Okay. And I'm not, um, I'm, not saying, I'm not talking about Anson Mount. I haven't watched the new one yet. I'm talking about um, the original guy uh, who played Christopher Pike. Uh, oh, my God. I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, it's been too long. But, yeah, I, uh, I think – I remember there's, there was an interview with Nimoy talking about that. Uh, he was saying, yeah, it was almost like uh, – he was giving me nothing to play off of. And it was so much easier to work with Shatner. We, we played off of each other so much better. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, and this was in the beginning for Shatner. This is way before he, when he started acting, he became a caricature of his old self, like in later movies. Like if you watched him in Boston Legal, he was almost a caricature of the actor he used to be. I don't mean that as an insult, but he became almost, 
they started writing to fit him instead of him fit the characters after a while. Right. And if you see him in in the really good episodes, my God, he really sells that part. You give him a good, yeah. story, he could chew it and really deliver. I mean, he was he was my idea. He had he conveyed someone with a great deep seated responsibility and a duty to his ship. Not like the reboot Star Trek where it seemed like you had a someone who was destined to lead. No, this was a guy who'd come up through the ranks and cared about his troops. Uh, yeah. I, I would have followed that guy. He was really inspiring. You, you know, the, the episodes were written by uh, veterans, a number of them, or people who'd grown up during World War II. And so there's this sense of uh, responsibility and that uh, life and death actually mean something. Uh, it, it could be really powerful stuff. Yeah, and I think... I know I've heard a, an a anecdote that when they were originally, so they did, I think it was one or two seasons and then they canceled it and then they re they rebooted it because they had so much interest. And part no, of that. Right. They almost canceled it, um, but uh, it was saved, but they put in a, in a crappy time slot. So then they lost their great story editor. They lost one of their producers and then Gene Roddenberry himself kind of stepped away. And so the people who, kept it going for the third season the script quality dropped just exponentially it's hard to believe as iconic as it is that there weren't as more seasons yeah yeah of course seasons were longer then so you have 79 episodes um most of the first season is is pretty good second season is has some of the very best episodes but it got a couple of weak well more than a couple it's got it's got a few weak ones and then that's when they started falling back on parallel worlds you know it's like oh here's the gangster planet which is kind of written as a comedy one, but gangster planet, the Roman planet, the Nazi planet, you know, they begin yeah. to, it's not quite as clever. Um, but then you get some of the great ones in there, like the doomsday machine and trouble with tribbles. Anyway, um, the third season is mostly clunkers with just a couple of good ones. One of the things when they were, when they were thinking about canceling it, according to the anecdote I heard was apparently there were a number of, cause this was, you know, right around the Vietnam era. There were a couple of people who had mentioned that it was, um, you know, having watched a few episodes and they, they started talking to each other about it in some of the POW camps as what kept them motivated. And then they would change the dialogue and act it out. And there were a couple of veterans that came forward that had been POWs that spoke on it. Uh, and that was part of what convinced some of the, the I guess, not publisher, I guess the production company. I don't know how apocryphal that is, how real that is, because I, I haven't dug into it. Um, but I just, I do know that it was initially a hit with the, some of the vet, with the veteran community, um, oh, as far as the audience. Well, you know, it was written, it was written by veterans. A lot of the script writers were veterans and a lot, a whole lot of the staff was veterans. And that's why you get that sense of, uh, responsibility and duty. Uh, you know, the modern conception of Kirk has been, been all twisted around. It's like, oh, he was a skirt chaser and he was always a rule breaker. Well, you know, he, he wasn't really as much of a skirt chaser, uh, as, uh, as as remembered and uh he when he did break a rule uh he had a really good reason for it mostly he was mostly he was dedicated to the service and did follow the orders yeah i think gene roddenberry if i remember correctly was a veteran yes um i know leonard 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 nimoy was i don't know that he was james Dewan was he was um he was a pretty famous daredevil pilot uh <laughs> Uh, and he also got his uh, one of his fingers shot off in the, in the war. That's why he always holds his hand in a certain way in some of the scenes. It's hard to see, but uh, I just googled it because I remembered some of them were because I've seen the meme floating around in veterans communities. 
So according to this list, uh, Gene Roddenberry, Mark Leonard, DeForest Kelly, Leonard, Leonard, is it Leonard or Leonard? Leonard. Leonard Nimoy, Robert Justman, Matt Jeffries, and Harlan Ellison, and James Doohan were listed as combat veterans from the cast. In, in I didn't know that Nimoy had served. That's awesome. Huh. I haven't looked deeper than it. I just remember, if I remember correctly, the guy that was one of the engine men was a veteran. Specifically, yeah. it was, it was decorated. Here, Scotty, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, he, used, he used to do some crazy piloting stunts, like uh, flying his plane in between telephone poles. <laughs> well, his story was the one, like, I wouldn't. He had enough um, citations for either bravery or insanity you pick that he did in combat. That you know he's you know this guy was a legitimate badass. Of course they couldn't. Of course he's the only red shirt that didn't die. Kind of thing that floats around. <laughs> um, but yeah. So anyway, it's it's just I didn't realize that until until you heard some of the anecdotes later because I, I got curious when the new reboots came out. I liked them. Um, made me curious about more. I mean, I, I can accept that they're not the original without getting too bad on shape. I know some people did. I think a lot of the problem with Star Trek was two different companies own two different parts of the timeline with, with regards to IP rights. And that makes it weird. Um, My biggest problem with the reboots was, you know, I grew up um, using Kirk as sort of an example of a, a way a leader should be a leader of men. And I didn't like their reconception of Kirk as someone who, uh, uh, who hadn't earned the responsibility to lead and didn't really understand what it was to lead. You know, here was a guy that the movie kind of turned into, oh, he's sort of destined to be the, the captain. That's just how it is. Um, yeah. That, and that's, that's what kind of turned me off. There were some cool moments and I liked, I liked some of the sequences and I liked some of the, I especially liked some of the actors. And I actually liked what Chris Pine did with his portrayal of Kirk, but I didn't like the way he was written. Uh, you didn't like the skirt chaser, or you didn't like that he was. Um, they they made him more they, more they roguish. Superficial, they had a superficial understanding of him. They took the they took the. There's like a misremembering of who Kirk really was. Almost like he's Zap Brannigan rather than Kirk, and Zap Brannigan's this uh, stupid exaggeration of him. I mean, I I love Futurama, but uh, Shatner. Shatner's Kirk didn't actually chase that many skirts, uh, and when he did, it was usually be, it was usually um, uh, part of uh, uh, you know some sort of assignment or because he needed to save the crew. And then you got to remember that these sixty shows they always gave romance to the lead. But if you haven't seen any other sixties TV shows, um, then it kind of seems like he's constantly on the prowl. I don't know. Yeah, if they wanted to be more accurate to uh, to military stereotypes, it wasn't going to be the naval officer that's constantly chasing alien skirt. It's going to be one of the Marines. <laughs> they, you know, they should have had like a chief of security for more than uh, a one or two bit parts. That would have been an interesting uh, continuing character. But they only they only had um, like a guest star play that character one or two times, and that would have been that would have been a cool continuing character. They did it some in the the next generation, but it didn't really work for me because in the next generation, that's the one I grew up watching. The um, they started with the female, the blonde. I can't remember her name. And if you're a Trek yeah, that, fan, that was uh, Tasha Yar. I watched. I wanted to like the next generation a lot, and I stopped after the first season, which felt about as bad to me as the third season of the original. I keep yeah. being told by people that it got a lot better by the third or fourth season. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I just yeah. couldn't. Get, I mean, I watched 
I watched it when I caught it, but I wasn't diehard fan. Um, but my problem with it is because she was so petite and they didn't go out of their way to build some sort of backstory about how she was some sort of martial arts kung fu badass. And then every time she's fighting the Klingons, which is supposedly this warrior race of unstoppable fighters who, you know, save the the union when they join the Federation and she's just kicking their butt willy nilly. And I'm like, well, if, you know, they're six foot something and she's five foot nothing and she's kicking their butt. How much of a badasses are they really? And because they were so worried about, you know, yay, lady power, which like you said, I have no problem with strong female leads if you do it right. Uh, but because it was so ham fistedly done, the end result wasn't to make her look good. It was just to make the Klingons look like, eh. That's which, the problem. You know, Star Trek could be really clever or it could be incredibly ham fisted. And sometimes it changes week to week. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes sometimes they're a lot more concerned with making their point than telling a story. And sometimes they tell a great story that just happens to make a point. Well, I mean, that's designed to make a point, but mostly it's about the story. And that's one of my that's one of my pet peeves is when you when you set out to tell a story just to make a point. And the point becomes the thing that you're hitting the audience over the head with. I like it better when there's a when there's a cool story, then maybe it's got a point in there too. But mostly, you're being entertained with this great adventure story. Yeah, and I don't even mind message fixing if it fits the plot. Like, sure. If if, if the message you want to tell works in where it feels like it's it works with the world, and I used this as an example before. There was one of the original series. Um, examples where they were trying to say racism was bad, but instead of having it be black versus white or mention that, you know, they had the first. I know exactly the episode you talk about that. I always thought that one was ham fisted. I mean, it does a great job of uh, rendering racism really stupid because they're half black on one side, half white on the other, but on opposite sides. But there's nothing else going on in the plot except that. I always compare and contrast that one with the doomsday machine. Have you seen that one? The giant uh, planet eater? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't find it as ham-fisted, but when you're not watching it in the time, I think the problem with something like Star Trek or any of the sitcom-style shows is they're very much a product of their time. So if you watch it when it's being filmed, you can get some of the cultural references. When you watch it years later, you only take it on surface value, and it changes your perception of the episode, I think. So for me, I thought it was cleverly done Um well, if you like that one, you should see some of the really strong ones then. I don't know how much yeah. I've seen. Yeah. I've seen more of The Next Generation, and I have to say, like every young boy, the idea of the holodeck, I'm just saying um, the world would be an interesting place if we had one of those, and probably not for the better. It's it's probably better that those aren't real. <laughs> Although, have you seen any of the Orville? No, and I keep hearing that that got pretty good by the second or third season. I haven't been keeping up uh, with a whole lot of uh, modern um, speculative fiction media, unfortunately. But So I watched the first season when it was on cable. Uh, then I canceled cable, and they went behind a paywall, and I'm just – I can only sub afford so many subscription services to watch shows. No, I get um, it. The, the opening scene, scene in the first episode, because I've only watched the first season – the uh, the one of the secondary characters is wearing um, samurai armor, fighting a giant orc in a samurai village, in what is essentially their hollow deck. And I'm thinking that's another good representation of how how you know boys would use that, right? Like live their their fantasy, like killing the orc every time or whatever. Like I could see that that kind of stuff too. But I I, I think. The cool thing for me about Trek, at least, was how much of the tech they sort of envisioned that then was created by fans of the show. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't get away from Miguel Cubier. 
and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of his name, but he was a Mexican scientist who figured out how to make the warp drive from Star Trek work mathematically. Huh. Oh, because he was a Star Trek. That's um, and the Alcubierre drive um, um, is spelled with an A. We, we've mentioned it before, but that was is used in a lot of sci-fi because the math works. The problem is, is the energy consumption to use it is more than our sun puts out. So while it's possible, it's not practical. Although using matter that doesn't really exist, it's like theoretical matter. Uh, there are some physicists who have figured out, well, maybe if we tweak this, it's actually manageable. But then you get into unreal particle. It's, it's just the whole thing. But but that happened because someone was a fan of Star Trek. Huh. Are you familiar with the X Prize? No. So they are a prize put on by the government, and it's funded through DARPA, which is Defense um, Research Agency. I don't remember what it stands for. And they actually had someone who invented the tricorder. Now, it had a limited utility on what it could diagnose, but it was a handheld device that the average person could use, run over a patient, enter certain information, and by road it could figure out, you know, within a small whatever. Again, because the person trying to do it was a huge fan of Star Trek. <laughs> and they made it work. That's great. Well, we, of course, we all have cell phones. I still can't believe that no one's made one that looks like an old-style communicator. But I've actually seen some cases yeah, for it, but I don't know. Uh, it's weird because you would think phones would have gotten more compact, and as they've gone on, every iPhone's gotten bigger. Right, right. I remember the Nokia flip phone that was like indestructible. It was like Rubbermaid, right? And you could just yeah. – um, the funny one is they actually, um, uh, this happened right before COVID they, um, they're doing construction and they unearthed, um, a dead body that had been buried maybe 15 years. It was one of the first versions of the Nokia flip phone for timeline purposes. Uh, he'd been buried with it. Uh, they were able to plug it in and it still had the information. So they were able to solve this guy's murder, uh, in New York because his Nokia flip phone after a decade in concrete still worked. Oh my goodness. They don't make tech like that anymore. No, they really don't. All right. And because you're a fantasy author and we're polytheistic, so the last religion question for you, sir. Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, or Lord of the Rings? Well, here's where I confess the only one of those I've finished. Well, you can't finish. You can't finish one of them. Uh, the yes. only one finished all the books that are available is Lord of the Rings. So okay. I definitely have to read Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, so my kids were really little when we're really little and I was, uh, uh, my wife was, had a really demanding job. And so I was the one who was getting up in the middle of the night with tiny kids. Uh, I wasn't even aware of wheel of the time until it was on book four or five. And at that point people were starting to say, you know, I think you might be padding this. And so <laughs> I never picked it up. I was already skeptical of a book if it was four or five books in and they all looked like they were large enough to hurt you. And my friends were saying they were feeling it was padded. So I never looked into it. Okay. I've tried to read it. I've met Robert Jordan in person. He's a nice guy before he died. I met him and Pat Conray at a, at a public event at my college. Um, he was a really sweet guy. I tried to read his writing. I don't know how much of that is as a product of the time and how much of it's a style that just didn't work for me. But I found his, I don't know, I just, his prose were, I don't want to say, they were just dense. It was like reading an academic book. Um, if I'm reading a textbook, I want to read a textbook. If I'm reading for fun, I want it more conversational, I guess, style-wise. Yeah, you know what? 
I'm going to change my answer and say uh, Conan. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's my answer. That's okay. Yeah. Um, that's sometimes the answer because Lord of the Rings seems unfair to all the others because it's the sort of the granddaddy of them all. Well, they're, um, all, they're all kind of like uh, epic fantasy. I'm not really an epic fantasy guy. I, I like the, the punchy sort of pulpy feel to uh, – Old style sword and sorcery better than anything else, and I actually, I actually really dig uh, Lord of the Rings, but I don't read and reread it the way I do the uh, uh, Robert E. Howard or some of the Fritz Leiber or uh, Lee Brackett's Sword and Planet stuff. Um, yeah, that's where my love, Michael Moorcock, all that stuff. Okay, so did you like um, like the um, sort of Shannara type series, which were? Not pulpy, but they're not high fantasy either. They were sort of. No, I, never, I never read them. Never read them. I Those read, were. I read Roger Zelazny's Chronicles Amber of Amber over and over and over. That was awesome. I don't think I've read that one. That's gonna. I've uh, I've been meaning to go back to some of the classics I've worked in. You know, started to do reviews of them. Um, so just. It's one of those things. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you don't know where you're gonna go, kind of thing. Like I think. It's important if you want to be a serious writer to read some of the classics. They become classic for a reason. I get that. So, you know, at some point when I was in my late 20s, I decided if I'm serious about wanting to be a writer, I better understand the roots of where this all comes from. So I threw myself into just reading a whole bunch of old stuff for like three or four years. So, you know, I came away with a great love for actually Lord Dunsany. Uh, okay. And uh, boy, is, is he amazing. Uh, a lot of his best stuff is are these really short stories. So if you read one that you don't quite like as well, it's okay. It's over quick. And then you come upon another. It, he's sort of like Neil Gaiman in a way in that every little snippet has all of these wonderful, um, uh, wonderful ideas in it, just right and left, right and left, just overflowing with amazing concepts and beautiful imagery. Um, so anyway, I loved that, and I loved uh, Lee Brackett's uh, Sword and Planet, and uh, I've already mentioned Robert E. Howard and uh, Michael Moorcock, and um, let's see. And then I, I, I realized after reading all of these older writers, the stuff that I liked the best um, was less epic and more just uh, sort of propulsive uh, pulp stuff. Okay. So is it the pulp stuff that you like that it doesn't take itself too seriously? Do you like the pacing? What is it about pulp? No, that's it's not that it doesn't take itself seriously. I mean, I do like some of that, but no, it's the pacing. Uh, I get tired of uh, navel gazing and uh, glacial uh, <laughs> glacial plotting. I want stuff that uh, clicks along. Uh, I don't want uh, I don't want uh, to watch anymore someone slowly gaining in power i want to see someone at the height of their abilities and the adventure already underway i don't want to sit through a long slow origin story i, I want to see the characters already you know like like a james bond movie james bond uh, already has all of his skills i don't really want to see an origin story of james bond i want to see him uh, on a mission you know ready to go let the excitement begin let's see what this guy can do with the full capability you know He's already leveled up, man. He's ready to roll. That's what I want to see. So you want it in media res. You don't want to, to, to travel with the character. Oh, no, I don't mind traveling with the character, but I don't want to sit around watching. I don't want to learn the character's background details for 100 pages before anything interesting happens. I don't mind watching a tri-fail cycle as the character grows and evolves. 
but but you do want to feel like it means something like yeah yeah and i think a lot of times in a lot of modern fantasy i'm not sure how much it really means i feel like they've i don't know you know what i do see it done well sometimes so i don't want to make it seem like i never want to see that and i don't want to make it seem like i've never enjoyed a coming of age story because there's been some really cool ones it's just at this point i'm kind of done with it i want to see some (laughs) i don't want to see that again for a while Okay. Well, since we're getting close to talking about the kinds of things that are in your book, we're going to pause for a moment because we're just going to do a blunt force segue while we shamelessly shill for the man. So we want to thank Bain again for sponsoring this episode. Uh, And then we'll get back to talking specifically about your book that brought us here and some parallels uh, as soon as this commercial plays. But um, please be patient. A newly minted PhD, Noah Parker is thrilled to land a dream job at the hottest tech company in the American Southwest, genetically engineering new lines for their feature product, Living Breathing Dragons. Desperate to create the perfect family pet, Reptilian Corp hopes to put a dragon in every home. But with his newfound access to the company's resources, Noah has a secret goal. Modify the dragon's genetic code, bending them to another purpose entirely. Domesticating dragons by Dan Cobalt and BaneBooks.com. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. Thank you, Bane and uh, and D- Dan for for sponsoring this episode. So um, before we we dive in, we we did forget to do this. But so, what kind of books are you known for writing? Yeah. So can you tell a little a little bit about you as a writer? Sure. Uh, look, I've been championing old school sword and sorcery with some modern sensibilities now for about 25 years or so. And so the first few books I did, I I used to be with St. Martin's were kind of a a raving historical fantasy, kind of like, uh, Oh, I think my favorite description was Sherlock Holmes crossed with the Arabian nights. Okay. Yeah. But you know, so there's swashbuckling stuff in an ancient time period, uh, but monsters and magic is real. It's just, are, are real, but uh, not everyone could do them. You know, they're dangerous and, and almost like X-Files in the Arabian Nights, if that makes sense. So yeah, th- that's what got my career started. Um, I did those and I did kind of a, a love letter to uh, the Chronicles of Amber with my uh, with my Ringsworn trilogy. So it's disguised as epic fantasy, but it's really it's really sort of sword and sorcery disguised as, as epic fantasy. Uh, and I also did uh, four Pathfinder novels for uh, Paizo. Uh, and of course, that's a uh, that's game fiction, but um, I tried to really heighten the uh, uh, the more propulsive pace of it rather than making it feel more like um, you know how uh, some some stuff feels like a, a, a sort of a Tolkien ripoff. I was trying to right. do trying to make it feel more on the Conan end of the spectrum. Okay. And, and now I'm at Bain, and I'm writing the most sword and sandalish thing I've written yet. So there's a whole lot of pacing, uh, you know, propulsive pacing in it right from the start. Sword and sandal, is that something you coined? Because I've never heard of that one before. No, sword and sandal is what they used to call the old gladiator flicks, right? So, okay. uh, yeah, since mine is um, has a real Roman feel to it rather than a medieval feel, I'm calling it sword and sandal. But, you know, it's it's sword and sorcery, so... So if you like Roman and you like fantasy, have you read any of Mark Allen Idleheit's Steiger series? I regret to say I have never heard of that author. So you'll have to tell me about that. So basically, you familiar with the uh, Ninth Roman Legion that disappeared in Scotland? Oh, yeah. Uh, Scotland. Oh. You mean Germany? 
Uh, well, it disappeared in Gaul, but it was also it disappeared on the other side of the Hadrian's Wall. Was the last known, as far as I understand oh, it. Oh, that one, Doug. On it, I'm sorry, brain freeze. I had it confused with the ones that uh, Augustus lost. You know, he wandered around. Oh yeah, yeah. My um, my legions. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Duh. Well, some of the units because they were they were sometimes splintered off. So one cohort would be over here with this lead of this legion, the same legion, different cohort over here. It confuses the record a little bit. Uh, and then when you lose a legion, they try to cover up the numbers because it looks bad. When you lose an eagle, that's not a good thing. Right. Um, but so he took what would happen if you took the ninth Roman legion, stuck it smack dab in the middle of Middle Earth, essentially was the premise. So, <laughs> so they're in a fit. They get sucked across voids that you find out later. Uh, and they end up they're in a fantasy land with elves and dwarves and shenanigans ensue. Now, he did make some allowances to modernize some of the terms for the legion for ranks and stuff. Um, so modern readers can relate to it. I know some of the, the um, hardcore Roman fans are like, no, 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 that would not be their rank. I'm like, mm. okay, but there's also a thing called, you know, uh, drift of cultures across time. So if it's been long enough, you can get away with a lot by saying things just evolved a little differently, but, but it's really good. I absolutely love that series. I have been reading the Simon Scarrow uh, series. I don't know if you're aware of Simon Scarrow, but he's sort of like the Horatio Hornblower version of a Roman um, guy advancing through the ranks. And those what are cool, great military science fiction. The author's name is Simon Scarrow. So, I mean, if you want to look look him up, uh, look for titles like Centurion <laughs> or, uh, you know, Pride of the Eagles or something like that. Let me see if I've got one handy here. I will definitely be looking those up. Oh, those are great. Yeah, the, I think the second one is called uh, The Eagle's Conquest. I mean, that's so clearly Roman fiction, right? Uh, you can't miss something called the Centurion, or I think there's one called the Praetorian Guard. And there's a whole sequence of them, and he's still writing them. I, I think they're probably probably in their teens at this point, how many there are. And I nice. haven't read one that's bad yet. They're all cracking great adventure, military, uh, military fiction set in the ancient world. The one thing I don't like as a classically trained historian is sometimes when they write the Romans, they tend to romanticize them, and they forget just how brutal they could be as an empire. Um, so there's another Bane book. Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, Mike Williamson wrote it where a modern army unit in Afghanistan gets sucked across time and they actually interact with some Romans. He's one of the few that I've read and I haven't read these series. So, you know, keep in mind, there's plenty out there I haven't read, but he's one of the few who got it right with just how brutal the Romans could be. Um, cause they ended up, you know, there's people from all across time got sucked in this void. Um, and if you would hurry up and write book two already. Um, it's another Bane book, but it's pretty good. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. I'll get the link of that too. Well, that sounds. Uh, of course, I I grew up reading uh, David Drake, and he did some really cool Roman stuff with Vettius and friends. Uh, and uh, he he co-wrote something with Carl uh, Edward Wagner called Killer, where there uh, where some Romans are trying to track this basically extraterrestrial extraterrestrial creature um, in ancient Rome and and kill it uh, before it kills more. Yeah, he did some great Roman stuff. I would have to check those out because I have never heard of some of these, but there's a lot of – so I I was a product of the 80s, uh, and then, you know, I came up reading in the 90s, but it was, you know, more stuff that was kid-appropriate. And then I got serious in school, and so it was all the academic stuff. And there, one thing you could say about a high school and college English department is they can make the English word boring and make you hate reading. Because yes. they pick, in some cases, the worst books to have you read. Yes, they uh, do. 
And so I always promised myself that if I ever got, when I got out of school, I would read books just because I wanted to read them again and not because it was a textbook. And then of course I deployed to the war and the brain damage. And then it was lots of recovery before I could get to the point where I could read again. Um, Kindle saved me because you can magnify the hell out of those. When I'm having a bad day, the large print, even that's not big enough. Um, so I've got a lot of catching up to do. And there's just so many good books out there these days. It's like, where do I start? Yeah. And of course, my eyeballs are bigger than my wallet when it comes to getting good books. <laughs> I am told I need to learn how to use the library apps because you can check out ebooks that way. Because I read ebooks or audiobooks because I can magnify it or I can listen uh, around my head. Angry. That's how I first uh, tried Simon Scarrow. Uh, I like him so well. I've started purchasing his books because I want to keep him. I want to. I want to buy his books to keep him writing. Right. But uh, yeah, I started trying them out as, as ebooks. Like, wow, these are really good. <laughs> I will have to um, I'll have to check those out, but <clears throat> sorry, that is um, oh, sorry about that. I didn't want to cough on here. Uh, swallowed that water wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just I've started reading that way, and so I've just I feel like I got so many good books. And so there's a period from the mid '90s to the early aughts where just a lot of good books came out that I just never read, and of course stuff that came out before my time. I've I've still got to go back to, but that is, that is on my plans to uh, start getting more audiobooks. The good thing is I've started writing reviews for upstream reviews, which when you're writing reviews for websites like that, sometimes you can get books for free. Like I got a, a advanced copy of your book that I'm going to read for a review. And that, that is the one thing. And so uh, when we tell you, you know, please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms, we say it every episode, dear listener, uh, one of the benefits is if you do it more than just on Amazon or Goodreads or you know Barnes and Noble websites or wherever else you buy your books, if you start a website and you start writing reviews, there are companies and authors that will be like, I will give you copies. Please write a review of my stuff and you'll have more books than you know what to do with. <laughs> uh, and see our episode on book reviews where Steve Diamond talks about that exact problem where he was reading 100 books a year or more and he had to finally tell people, no, like I'm swimming, like I'm drowning in books. I have no more room in my house right now. Um, so it's a good problem to have, but it could be your problem too, dear listener. If you, if you do a review site, if you do reach out to us and we will highlight the crap out of that because you know, that's how we find the good ones. Right. And it's not even just what's good or what's bad. Cause that's all subjective. It's what's the right book for you. Cause you know, what I might love about a book you might hate. Some of my favorite reviews of some of my stuff came from the negative ones. It's like, oh, this book was written like a 12 year old with ADHD wrote combat fiction. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> so all right so now that we've talked about what your book is like and we've gone to some of the roman stuff did you know when you wrote this that you wanted to kind of let rome and carthage and all of that inspire you or did it just sort of come about as you were writing it and you realized oh crap this is what i'm doing oh no see i've been i've been fascinated with hannibal of carthage since i was 16 and so as i was finishing up that last series for saint martin's i uh like what do i really want to write uh, and I'd written a couple of short stories about this character and I just had a whole bunch of ideas about him. You know, that I don't know how much you want to talk about the, uh, the what if or the history inspiration behind this dude. Do, do you want me to bore your uh, readers with uh, the history? No, absolutely. I, I think the way you've delivered it doesn't sound very boring. So as long as we don't dive into a treaties on the first and second Punic War, I think we're okay. And if you don't know, first war, Punic War, Hannibal, 
Hamilcar Barca, Hannibal's dad, fights the Romans, loses, teaches his son to hate the Romans. He launches a war, Second Punic War, fights the Romans, loses to Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus, the elder at the Battle of Carthage, salts the earth, iconic history. That's it in a nutshell. I think now that we've dove to that history, you can sort of give us the good parts. Well, Carthage actually survived the Second Punic War and was destroyed in the third, 50 years after Hannibal's death. So my Hannibal was an interesting guy for all sorts of reasons. Not only was he one of the most brilliant generals in history, he's one of the few of the ancient generals who wasn't really fighting to conquer territory. When he went after Rome, it wasn't to go over there and take Rome and turn it into a Carthaginian province. He was basically trying to destroy the hegemony of Rome because he knew that if, um, if Rome won, they would probably come and destroy Carthage. It turns out he was right. 50 years after his death, they did. They sowed the ground with salt. They destroyed the place. They sold 50,000 people into slavery. Um, it was it was pretty bad stuff. So my what if was, what if the Romans had come for Carthage during Hannibal's lifetime when he wasn't there? What would he have done? So that was the, that was the big what if. But I didn't want to write uh, historical fiction, uh, even alternative historical fiction. I wanted to do a fantasy novel because I wanted to play fast and loose and have uh, dark sorceries and things. So that's the inspiration. There's a character who's very much like Hannibal. He's the smartest guy in the room and he's devoted to his people. Um, and there's an empire at the time, Roman was a Republic, but I made this an empire because I figure if I'm writing sort of Roman fiction, people are going to want to see emperors and Praetorian guards and gladiators. There weren't even really gladiators when Hannibal was around. So the elevator pitch I gave Bane was, uh, Basically, it's kind of like Captain America versus the Roman Empire or uh, the adventures of Aragorn, Aragorn if Soren had won. So here's here, here's the full pitch. It's um, uh, the Durbans have come for Volanis. They have the people fought block by block, house by house until most of them fell with sword in hand. Um Less than a thousand survived to be taken away in chains. The temples were looted. Uh, the treasuries were looted. The ground was sown with salt. The Durbans thought their destruction was complete, but they overlooked one detail. Hanavar, the greatest Villani general, had escaped alive. And now, against the might of a vast empire, he has only an aging sword arm, a lifetime of wisdom, and the greatest military mind in the world bent upon a single goal. No matter where his people have been taken, from the farthest outpost to the empire's rotten heart, he will find them, every last one of them, and he will set them free. That is compelling. Uh, as a weird side note, when I studied, um, I, I took a World Civ class because my focus was on, a, as an undergrad, your history is a, a jack of all trades. Like you focus on everything. So most people combine the second and third Punic War together. Um, so I thought it was fascinating to when you hear people that like, no, they definitely are separate. Um, it's always interesting. But so you knew you were going to let this be the inspiration now. Oh, right from the start. Yeah. I mean, this guy's been. This guy's been kind of a hero of mine since I was a teenager. So yeah. Did you did you let the inspiration? So the the actual Hannibal and, and Hamilcar, they were definitely fueled by hate to a large degree. Now what we know of them, we know because the Romans wrote about it. So there is some speculation that um, 
facts were manipulated to make the Romans look even better, which means uh, if I defeat you and you're a nobody, my defeat is nothing. If I defeat you and I make you out to be the best thing since, since I don't know, sliced bread, then when I beat you, it's that much more significant. So we don't know how much, at least with Hamilcar and less so with Hannibal, we don't know how much of them were they really geniuses or was it, uh, I, I don't know, was it, was it, you know, hyped up? I fell in love with with the, uh, the the Carthaginians when I read a book, and I've looked for it because I would have loved for my sons to read it. But the name of the book was A Boy Rides with Hannibal, and it was a series of books called A Boy With. And it basically told of a young boy in various historic periods because it was written for young boys' is readership. And I, for the life of me, I haven't been able to find it. Um, so if you're listening, dear listener, and you've heard of it, I want links so I can find it. I'd love to buy that for my kids. Um, <laughs> the one that but, uh, me up was um... – uh, Harold Lamb's biography of Hannibal called Hannibal One Man Against Rome. And that uh, I read that and I was just fascinated. I've read, God, a shelf, a large shelf full of library books of Hannibal. I've got most of them on my bookshelf over here on my right. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of authors who have been inspired by that. Are you familiar with um, Brad Thor? Yes. I have not yet read him, but I am familiar with him. So he wrote a series. So he basically is is his um, political thriller fiction. It's thriller stories, but he had one where they unearthed. So when Hannibal crossed the Alps, some of the elephants didn't make it. They, you know, they buried in snowdrifts, never to be seen again. Uh, and in this theory, it basically earthquake something. I can't remember. It's been a a minute since um, a decade. It's been a while since I read that book. But basically, the premise is they discover the frozen remains of some of those elephants in what they were carrying and basically it's germ warfare and the premise was because uh, the the romans and the carthaginians were using pretty what well, we would consider advanced uh, biological warfare where they would like morph certain things together to create stuff to, to to kill you in nasty ways and so like mixing snakes with this or that rabies with snake venom that kind of thing uh, and they the theory of the book was they found that but his crossing the Alps, whatever else you want to say about him, whether his victories were overblown, crossing the Alps the way he did, that was not over. That was historical fact, and we know he did that. So we definitely know he was a genius. Did you write in anything like that with the Alp crossing and the elephants? Or did you start after the war? I start after the war. Um, so many people know all those details. I wanted to do the I wanted to start afterward, after the great defeat, what would he do? But I do try to make him as brilliant as the guy who did that uh, and all the other amazing victories and the other wily things that are attributed to him that uh, uh, aren't as widely known. Um, this guy, this guy was really smart. And so I have to try and write a really smart character. Some of the things that he makes on a snap choice, snap, snap judgment i have to maybe sit and think about for a couple of weeks before i figure out how he would uh, get out of this particular situation but yeah so do you plan on telling any of the prequel stories with um with you know the time of the war or do you only plan on taking the universe forward no i'm only i'm only taking it forward a lot of that stuff is implied uh he's actually just as the real Hannibal was Hannibal and Scipio actually respected one another and were friendly toward one another. Um, and he has a pretty good relationship with his analog on the other side. Uh, and there's an occasional flashback and we'll see some of these events that took place. 
Um, but no, I really don't have any interest in that. If people want to see what happened to four, they can go read. They can go read a good biography, and they'll get kind of this. They'll get the gist. Yeah, um, that that works. I was just curious. Um, there, you know, there's room for this world to to grow. Clearly, um, do you plan on see? And uh, this might be spoilers. Do you plan on having the um, the pseudo Carthage rise up again, or is it going to always be an exile kind of story? Uh, no, the reason he wasn't there was because he was off founding a colony. Uh, that's why Hanover wasn't there when uh, Volanus uh, was destroyed. And uh, so he's just trying to find the people that were sold into slavery and find a way to get them back home. And he's, of course, he finds all sorts of other things along the way and other complications and other sinister plots. But uh, no, he's not really trying to rebuild this shattered city, this shattered land. Uh, he's just trying to get his people free. Is the colony still there? Is that where he's operating from? He's not operating from it. He's a very long way away from the colony. He's basically one man on his own against this impossible quest. He really doesn't think he's going to make it. He's just trying to free as many people as he can before he goes down. You know, you heard me earlier talking about duty and responsibility, uh, a man dedicated to uh, his people. And that's that's what this guy is. So is this like there's a story in the Greek mythology of, the, you know, the the um, traveling, you know, the sailors trying to get home kind of thing? Odysseus, uh, was that an inspiration for his journey then at all, since you love the ancient? Sure, a little bit. So the way I've structured it, it's a series – you know, I, I've told you how much I love the old Conan stories and the Liber stories and the Elric stories. Um, those things are a lot of them individual episodes that fit together into a greater whole. Uh, some some are more loosely connected than others. What I do, it's almost like each book is a season of a modern television series. So each individual adventure in the book can stand alone, but they're a lot more fun if you read them in order because you get to know... Uh, secrets about the character's background. You get to see villains reintroduced. You see like an arc that begins in one story gets resolved into the next one. And then by the end of the book, uh, a whole lot of the stuff that happens over the course of the book builds towards a climax. So the final episode of each book uh, is like a season finale where a whole bunch of arcs are introduced, but there remains more to happen um, for the next book. I don't like cliffhangers. So that's that's what this is. It's almost like a season of a of a sword and sorcery TV show starring uh, Hanavar wandering to try to save his people. Okay. Um, so do you? So the the people that he does rescue, does he send them home to this colony? Do they join him and sort of grow a party in adventuring with him? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, and sometimes he doesn't. It's not like every story is about. The rescue sometimes is just about the problems carrying off, uh, trying to build a network, and uh, just surviving. So, so I don't want to give too much away, but there's it's not just the same plot over and over. Don't think you're going to watch like the original Incredible Hulk show where it's the same darn plot every single time. There's all sorts of challenges and surprises along the way. So I know at the time of recording this, we're recording this, dear listener, in July of, uh, of 2023. Um, and this book will be coming out in August. I think this will be launching right kind of close to 
Um, this episode will air on the 4th, uh, August 4th. I don't know your exact launch date, but I know it's close. It's August um, yeah, and you've got book two done, uh, and you're working on the third. So we know there's more. When you say when you describe this episodic plot, are you talking within each individual novel? Like you could almost break it up into sub sub arcs that could be their own episode if it was a television show, or are you talking across the various books in the series? I'm I'm talking about both. So okay. <laughs> yes, yes, each book is divided into separate sections, but they're very closely connected. So it is very much, if you wanted to binge watch a TV show that's episodic, but they're connected, that's what this is. That's what the book is. You could like pick uh, story five from book one and read it all by yourself, uh, all by itself. And it would make perfect sense, but it would be more fun if you'd read the previous four. That was the little, that was the challenge I gave myself to try and set them up almost like old school sword and sorcerer. Each one could stand alone, but that it all fits together into a bigger whole. And then each book is also set up so that it builds on the one before. Yes, you can read them out of order if you want, but you're going to have a lot more fun if you do read them in order. I, I will say that's something. Okay. Well, first off, how long is the first book and how long is each like part within it? Like just for readers trying to envision it. So uh, book one is about, uh, let's see, right around uh, 480 pages and book two is a little over 500 and each Ooh. one, yeah, each one of them has uh, 14 adventures in it. Eat your heart out, Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> um, so when you organize this, were you intentionally thinking about writing what could be televised? Or was it just, you know, I want to try something? No, I wasn't really thinking about it being televised. I mean, that way lies madness. I wanted to, I grew up reading these old stories that, um, that were sort of loosely connected. And I wanted to do something that felt like that was even more tightly integrated. And so I just used that to try and explain it to modern readers. Oh, it's like a season of a TV show because episodic novels really aren't done as much anymore. And I don't want people to say, oh, I don't want to read an episodic novel. Then it's a bunch of disconnected short stories. I want to make clear to them that these are super well connected. One occurs right after the other. But I also want them to kind of get the idea, oh, each one, each separate moment could stand alone because they're, Hopefully they'll get that because they watch a whole lot of cool uh, episodic television where it's interconnected, right? Okay. Well, I know yeah. one thing traditional publishing does differently than independent publishing is that you tend to write each book has to stand alone to a degree, even when they build on each other, because you never know in the bookstore what they're going to have. They might have your third book, but not your first and second. It's just staffing, stocking issues and all the things. So I, I get why that happens. Um, I will say that some of the modern publishers have taken to linking them on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you're buying ebook copies, some of the older stuff you really had to hunt and you had to really want it to find the books in order to buy them. Yeah. Um, yeah. They never link them. Um, they've gotten better at that. So I, I like that you did that where even though it stands alone, it does make sense to read them in order. I, I wouldn't say OCD, but I, I get pretty eye twitchy when, when I, the idea of reading something out of order just, fundamentally bugs me for reasons I can't quite articulate. No, I get it. I get it. You know, I also, I've been talking all sword and sorcery stuff, but I also dig other genres. Uh, so like the Harry Dresden books, right? Those can, most of them can be read on their own standalone, but again, they're a lot more fun if you read them in order. And that's, that's, I, I, I that's kind of what this is, right? They're more fun if you read them in order, but they, they would stand alone. Okay. I like that. So, 
we uh, we we had in the pre-show we talked about this art. So did you have any say in this um this cover, or did you just let the artist do his thing? I let the artist do his thing. That is the talented Dave Seeley, and he's illustrating a moment from the very first uh, the very first story. Um, and I won't tell you what's going on there. I think, uh, uh, yeah. So he chose a moment, and then uh, for book two, the cover he did for that one, he chose a moment from the story all on his own. I didn't. I didn't choose the moment. So. Okay, but in addition to the story. Uh, we have the map that you drew. I know some people, I, like I'm, I'm a huge fan of maps and fiction and I love it. I love the old books where they would put that in. So did you draw this map yourself? Did you have a commission? How, how did you get this map? Well, that is the work of my son, Darian Jones. Uh, he, uh, he has an art degree, but he's been gifted from a very young age. And he drew my, uh, drew my maps for my last two St. Martin's novels. And so when I got the band contract, I showed them the maps said, Hey, can my son draw the maps for this series? And they're like, yeah, those maps look great. Sure. And then of course we get this and I'm super pleased with how that turned out. Uh, he's quite a talent. Uh, I, will get, um, I will get with you in the post show to add this to the show notes. I think we should link to that. Cause if there are uh, some of our audience are also authors and if you're looking to hire a map, you know, there are options out there and, and you know, you might be able to hire this guy cause this is, this is quality. Did he draw this by hand and then digitize it? Did he use some sort of mapping program? Oh no, he drew that. And I mean, he drew it on his, uh, he's got this uh, pad drawing pad that transfers whatever he's drawing by hand onto the screen. Um, no, oh, that is not crazy. That is just him. That's even more impressive. I know some people use like uh, ink art and uh, um, fractal mapping is one, although that's more cartoonish. And then you've got CC3, Campaign Cartographer 3. Um, all of those are good, but it's that's impressive if he drew that by hand. Now, did you sketch anything out for him to kind of give him an idea of what he was looking at? Or did you oh, just read the book? No, I kind of did. I drew some stuff. He's like, that doesn't look as good, Dad. And <laughs> it's like, why don't you try this? It's like, okay, that's 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 much better because I'm terrible. It helps that he's he's been a really huge fan of these stories from the very start. He really he really digs them. And so uh, that's so much more fun than working with someone who may not be into it, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, this is where this story happened. Don't you think it ought to be a little bit closer to the coast? Remember you said this about the story. Like, yeah, thanks. You're right. And if you look, I don't know how big it's going to be on your screen, dear listener, but if you look at the map, is this in the, uh, the paperback or the ebook or both? Uh, it's uh, it's in both, yeah. Uh, and um, it's it's a, impressive, and I bet if you join his mailing list or whatever, you'll be able to see it in all its glory because it's, it's kind of cool to read a story when you've got the map and you can kind of follow it along uh, for reference. I, I always love that. For, you know, just for as long as I can remember reading, I love the maps that came with it. So I love, and then, I love how he added the little the little dotted path showing uh, where Hanavar starts in the first story and um, uh, all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm impressed. It's pretty good. And then he drew, uh, is this your main character? Is, who is this that yeah, he drew? Yeah, yeah. That's Hanavar. So I'm a huge fan of Batman the Animated Series, and so is my son Darian. And uh, for my birthday a, a year or two ago, he drew sort of a Batman the Animated Series version of uh, Hanavar. There he is with his sword out and his hand held back protectively as though he's uh, getting ready to kick some butt and protect some people. 
So for weapons, what did you use for blades? Did you stick with the Roman sort of gladius short sword? Did you like what what was your inspiration in the model for the weapons you used? So that picture there, that's a Falcata, which of course the Carthaginians were using. They adopted it from Spain. And it's such a cool weapon that I that's what I have the people of Volanus use um, as their native weapon. But Hanavar has to travel in disguise. So he's not wandering around with a very distinctive looking Volani weapon. As a matter of fact, a lot of times he's not obviously carrying a weapon. When he does, it's usually just standard, uh, standard Durban Empire gear. So he he would normally be wielding a gladius if you're going to see him with the weapon. And he normally is not clean shaven. You see that that's a very sort of empire cut. He doesn't, uh, he's in disguise. It doesn't look like it used to look back in the war days. Otherwise he would immediately be recognized. Okay. I, I, I really like, um, I really like that the art is, I like when there's art of the characters because it helps me envision them um, as the author described. Um, when I read, I don't know what everyone else, dear listener, and if, you've, if, you, if you're different, I'd love you to comment in the Facebook or wherever you're listening uh, to discuss this, the rumble, the bit shoot. But I tend to read a book and picture it in my head like a movie. So when I see the artist or the author's approved version of what that character looks like, that just helps me more. There's a modern trend to not describe people, which drives me bonkers. Like, I want to know what they look like. I mean, I don't need to know where every mole is, but you know, <laughs> something. No, right? that actually drives me a little crazy too. Uh, yeah, I, I like to, uh, you know, I guess I grew up reading characters who were well described, and I like to have a pretty good sense of what they look like. Yeah, but I'm also, I don't mind an info dump or two if it's well done. And I know modern, like, oh, no, info dumping is bad. Let the reader guess and fill in the blanks. And I'm like, well, then are you writing a story or are you writing an outline? <laughs> Like, I don't know. It just, it bugs me. I mentioned that in every one of my reviews and I get why like readers say, well, if you don't describe them too much, then the reader could picture it as themselves. But I can associate with characters of any stripe. I don't have to have them look exactly like me. So I want you to describe them for me. Like that's part of what you're doing when you're, when you're spinning the yarn. Right. So uh, I think it's kind of cool that you had that art. Um, did his art inspire how you described him? Like when you when he did it, did you go back and change anything, or did he stick true to what you had originally? Oh, he he pretty much stuck true to what I what my conception was. Okay. Yeah. So, so, he's, a, so he's an older man who's uh, still fit. His hair is graying. He's got um, uh, gray eyes. Uh, yeah, and and very intent expression. You know. <laughs> uh, I, I hopefully uh, hopefully people will be able to see the link. So I, I was I was just delighted with that picture. I, I actually so, think his arms probably ought to be thicker than my son drew them. He's used to drawing thinner people, and he probably ought to be more muscular in the arms. But other than that, it's pretty awesome. So, did you touch on any of the the non combat culture that was big in the day? So the food they ate, the you know the some of the cultural traditions or did you make up new foods and cultural traditions for this fantasy world you know a little bit of both i mean i i've made up some food that they eat and um the the durban empire stuff is very much like ancient rome but i played fast and loose with carthaginian stuff because frankly there's some carthaginian things that I, i'm not as well about their culture about uh, so i made up a more uh i never felt like carthage deserved hannibal's loyalty as as much as he gave it 
at least the Carthage, the, I mean, who knows? Because all of our information about Carthage comes from the people who destroyed it practically. But the version of Carthage that's handed down, it doesn't seem like it deserves such loyalty. So I tried to create a city that deserved this uh, this uh, man to be so loyal to it. So, Yeah, they definitely vilified their religion. Um, how much of that is true, I just don't know. You, you've got to take everything with a grain of salt when it comes to the ancients. And then sometimes the people writing about it are writing about it hundreds of years later. So, you know, it's like the game of telephone. How accurate is it? I don't know. Of course, I was the jerk that would mess up the message in telephone on purpose just to see what people would do with it. Um, I was that guy, people. So did you did you mention the iconic garum, the uh, the uh, the fish sauce that Romans oh, seem to want? Yes. But I hate it. Yes, it's I did. Anavar hates it. And he has to pretend to uh, pretend to like it, you know, in a couple of sequences. It's like, they, you know, the Roman, the Durbins put it on everything. <laughs> did you uh, did you ever try it yourself? No, I've, I tried a reconstruction once in a Latin class long ago, but I don't think it was very close. It, it was dreadful, but I've heard that, yeah. I've heard people say that uh, actually, that, you know, they've tried it reconstructed. It's actually not that bad. So, um, there's a show that does. Uh, there's two different YouTube channels that do historic cooking, um, cooking with the ancients. I think where there's a guy that made a actual took the recipe of garum and he recreated it, and he said it was awful. But he followed their recipe to the letter that they left down because some of the recipes survived. Now, much like anything, like there's plenty of things you can say, I tried it and it was gross. And someone will be like, oh, well, then you didn't try it made right. Because, you know, if you change it a little different, it changes the taste. Talk to any person who's talking about a cultural food that you don't like. And someone will say, well, you just didn't eat it cooked right. And that, that's always true because there's just because this is the recipe he made doesn't mean it's the only recipe. Right. Like there's hundred derivations of it but i do know that food played a large role in ancient cultures uh and so it's cool that you 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 incorporated that now you say you you tried some of the stuff to make it realistic so when you write your combat scenes for instance obviously we don't carry swords around with us these days um how do you go about writing that so it feels believable because i've read some combat where yeah, for that to work, Bob had to disconnect his leg, reach around with his third arm to hit you with his leg because the body just doesn't bend that way. Like, I mean, it's some of it's it's laughably horrible. So I've studied martial arts for a long time, uh, and I mean, I don't I don't just mean I've watched a lot of uh, martial arts films. I mean, I have a third degree black belt, so. Um, I don't mean to suggest that I break boards with my bare hands or anything, but I've got a lot of years of experience knowing how bodies move uh, in combat. And so um, I feel like I can pretty accurately depict what it's like to be in a situation of hand to hand combat. Um, I've done a little bit of sword training, not nearly as much as I have just basic uh, karate stuff, but I think that really gives me a nice leg up on all of my combat scenes. So have you held any of the blades um, to like, to feel how they would balance so you could describe it? I have gotten to hold uh, gladius replicas. Yes. I have never gotten to hold a real falcata. Uh, I have uh, supposedly they're really well weighted at the end so that when you swing them hard, they hit almost like an axe and they're very dangerous and quite deadly and effective, which is why the uh, uh, Hannibal adopted them for the, uh, from the Iberians. Um, 
So that's one of the things that surprised me is two is twofold. One, when you talk, if you go back far enough, a lot of what we're doing is historic guesswork. Uh, we we as historians don't like to call it that, but we're guessing. Um, and so I've actually held, like for instance, a, a row, uh, Egyptian kopesh. I've held it, and, uh, and so I know one of those. Those yeah, are awesome too. It's a little bit like a falcata. That's what I've heard. That's why I mentioned it. In the balance is something you think about. Um, I know like with HEMA, the historic European martial arts, which goes into all the sword training and stuff that they would have done, or at least for the for the window that it covers, that the books exist. Um, it's very detailed. They left written records that are very detailed. Whereas if you're trying to study, for instance, African, uh, historic African martial arts, there wasn't as much written down. It was very oral tradition. So there's actually some people out there, and I almost had one of them come on the podcast, but he went ghost on me I don't, uh, when uh, when they had some power outages because he's actually in Africa. Um, a lot of what we know about that, we're taking what we understand of martial arts in general, what we understand of the weapons because we know how they worked, and we're guessing on how they might use them. And then even then, you know, it's going to be clumsy and feel clumsy because these people that are using them did it every day. It was second nature, muscle memory. Uh, and that makes you able to do things that you might not have been able to do the first day you pick it up. So it is interesting to see, you know, when you try to recreate that. I know a lot of people get, oh, well, they wouldn't have done it that way. But we don't know that. You know, right. if it works from a biological perspective, they were smart. They did what worked and made sense. That didn't mean they wrote it all down. So there's there's a lot of room for guesswork. So well, do you think – Go ahead. As I say, do you think uh, the way you wrote it is going to get some of the sticklers for history? They're like, oh, that's not how he would have done it if you're talking about Carthaginians or whatever. Yeah. No, because it's secondary world and they're not actually Carthaginians or Romans. So if I ever make a mistake, I could say, ah, but see, that was just a fantasy world. Plus, um, yeah, I, I think I think that covers me. I want people to remember it's a fantasy novel, not a historical novel. So, Okay. Yeah. Well, what kind of um, – so you mentioned there's obviously the, the pseudo-Carthage and pseudo-Romans. But you also mentioned magical creatures, and we saw something on the cover. So let me go back to that cover. First off, I know you can't tell us what happens in the scene, but can you tell us what the uh, creature is that he's facing? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an Asalda, which is uh, what his people call a, a, a sort of a winged serpent, right? So it's not it's not sort of a D and D style uh, dragon. It's more of an Oriental style winged serpent. Uh, they are not common. Uh, the old sword and sorcery novels, magic isn't common or easy. So if there's magic involved, it's more like ancient myth, where it's dark and unpredictable and probably isn't going to be helpful or kind. Now he occasionally will bump in. So there's. And of course, you're going to run into monsters from myth and things in these. I don't, I don't have any minotaurs or anything like that, but um, it very much has a feel of a sword and sandal epic where there's uh, an occasional monster or there's horror or um, things man was not meant to meant to know. There aren't any. Uh, there aren't like friendly wizards wandering around with beards and wands and uh, potions of healing. It's not that kind of magic. Okay. So do you have a hard and fast rule for your magic or is it um, kind of left to be mysterious? Like how did you approach it as a, as an author when you wrote your magic? Well, you know what? I do have some appreciation for really um, 
encyclopedic magic systems, but I didn't want to do that with this. I don't like, I didn't think magic that felt like science was the right approach for this. If you read Greek and Roman myths, that's not how magic feels. It's something that you can't control very well and is unreliable and is dangerous. I don't want hard and fast rules. Now I have a pretty good idea about some of the stuff under the surface about what's going on, but the characters involved don't really, they don't have it really codified. Uh, some of them know rituals to do some of the evil things that go down, but that doesn't mean that they're truly in control of what's about to happen. If that makes sense. It's more like they get, they kind of get the guidelines, but if they screw anything up, it's not going to go well. So okay. that's the approach I took. Okay. I, I appreciate that. Um, when you were creating these magical beings, uh, or these the 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 non-human creatures, so the the dragons, the whatever you invite, how do you go about doing that as a creative? Do you let like myth, lore, and legends inspire you? Do you you let biology sort of inspire it? Uh, use us as therapy and write about your nightmares. Like, how do you go about creating when you write these creatures? I guess I'm more inspired by myth and nightmare than I am anything else. I'm not. I don't. Just like the combat, I, I try to think of something that feels like it 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 seems reasonable that that could be pulled off. Uh, I don't try to come up with anything that just is totally ludicrous or um, or ridiculous. I want it I want it to be uh, horrific or fascinating or um, or beautiful. I don't want it to be weird, so weird that it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I'm more inspired by. Does it feel like something that could have come out of a myth? Then, yeah, I'm all for it. I want it to feel like it could have stepped out of a, of some story that we've never heard, some lost uh, Greek legends. Oh, yeah, that could have been in a story. I've never heard of that, but it sounds like something that could have been in there. That's the feel I'm going for. Okay. Did when you wrote it, obviously writing is a collaborative process between you as the creator and if you're working with a publisher, your editing team. Um, because when I hire an editor, they, they work for me and I, I can listen or not. When you work with an editor with a trad pub, my understanding is they have some level of, they're part editor, part, you know, for the grammar and part editor for content because they, you know, sort of in theory are experts on the reader base. So how much of your vision made it to the books and how much did you have to alter because of your process with Bain? I am incredibly fortunate. Tony Weifskopf loved this book. So she didn't make me change anything except some typos. This is, this is my vision. The people that helped uh, shape it uh, before Tony and I must, I must shout out Sean. Sean loved this book and championed it and made sure that Tony saw it. Um, the people who were important in shaping it were my wife, who's a brilliant, uh, my brilliant beta reader who had many wonderful suggestions and a small team of uh, trusted beta readers, including my son. So they helped me, uh, they helped me hone it so that I could then show it. But no, no, uh, nothing had to be changed once I showed it to Bain, except they helped me find some stupid, uh, stupid typos and occasional repeated phrase and stuff like that. Some of these typos can be um, very stubborn. I've seen comments like this book wasn't edited because they didn't, find, you know, they found a mistake. And I'm thinking, no, that's been through three editors. And that's, you know, that typo was so stubborn. It was missed by all of them. So, <laughs> you know, that's just inevitable. Human nature is. And 
if you read a story enough, you start to see what you think should be there and not always what's there. Right. Um, so that that's impressive that you, that you got it as clean of a copy as you did. Um, so do you have a, a background in history? Like, are you, were you a classically trained historian? Did you get your degrees in that? Or you just, was it just a love affair for you? Oh, it was just a love affair. My degree is actually in radio, TV, film. I was going to be a TV cameraman. Um, That's cool. But it didn't last very long. It was only one for about, uh, gosh, just about a year. And then um, then we had to move. And there was a, I could not find a job in the industry to save my life. So uh, crazy, crazy. I trained for four years to be a cameraman and uh, <laughs> was only one for a brief year, really. Okay. Um, so, okay. So when you go about um, writing this one, obviously you wrote two novels because we've talked about two of them are written and you're writing the third. What does your contract say with Bane as far as what the series arc is going to be? And then what do you hope it might evolve past? Because obviously we always want more than whatever the contracts are for. So, so it was so cool. Um, I wrote the first one. My agent begins to shop it around to a number of publishers, but I'll be honest, I had my fingers crossed for Bane, and I'm not just saying that. I, I figured they liked stories of heroes. This is a hero. It seems like a good fit. But it takes a long time to get people to read. They've got a lot of other things that arrived there before you. So while that was uh, while that was being shopped around, I loved the character so much, I just wrote the next one. Uh, but the proposal had one complete book, uh, outlines, you know, like one-page outlines for uh, two others, and then it, I kind of mentioned, you know, I have additional ideas. I could probably write a couple more. So uh, normal publishing contracts, they usually might bite on one, possibly two, occasionally three. What I did not expect was that when Tony read it, that she would offer me five. So I'm just delighted to write five books of this character who I'm in love with, um, I feel like she really believes in the story and uh, and the character and the power of the adventures. So, yeah, five. And you know what? I'm having so much fun. I, I could I could see probably writing two more, but it all depends on how well the first few sell. Right. So hopefully, hopefully everyone will have as much fun reading it as I'm having writing it. And I'll be able to carry it on just a little bit longer. Speaking of reading it, do you know who your audiobook narrator is going to be? Unfortunately, no. No, I know Bane is pretty good about getting audiobooks, but there's generally a lag. And, and if you don't know, dear listener, because you're not involved in the industry, there's actually a lag anyway on audiobooks because not everyone was set up for home studio. So when COVID hit and people were locked out of studios, you know, you set one, two, sometimes three years backlog because not all of these narrators were able to get in and do their recording. Um, for various local restrictions, regardless of where they were in the world, because every locality, you know, that has the audiobook narrators had different rules and then sometimes different cities. You were there, you know. Um, so that being said, do you have an estimated date of when they might come out with one? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't. Um, I know that uh, it's in the contract, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when it's going to happen. Well, then when the audiobook does come out, you'll have to hit us up so we can throw a, uh, a link in the uh, in the Facebook group for the Blasters and Blades podcast, because I will uh, be anxiously waiting for that audiobook. Um, with the audiobooks, obviously, when you write fantasy, there is a lot of made up words and, uh, and names. It doesn't look like because I skimmed it. You just had given me a, an ebook copy 
a day or two ago. It doesn't look like you took the uh, the fantasy trope of adding like a dozen per uh, apostrophes to every name and writing something that is like unintelligible um, and unreadable and unpronounceable. Do you get all bent out of shape about pronunciation, or are you okay letting the narrator do his thing? I am pretty. I'm pretty cool with it. Um, you know, I try to create names that are easy to read. I try to. I try to write. So many people listen to books these days. Um, so I try to write with that in mind uh, from the very get-go so that the names hopefully flow fairly well. I, I think if someone were to pronounce Valanus, Valanus, that would probably drive me a little nutty. Um, <laughs> you know, anytime you pronounce something so that it sounds um, <laughs> sounds bad, but otherwise, I'll, otherwise I'm cool with it. You know, I've never exactly known how to pronounce Scipio. Is it Scipio or is it Scipio? I don't know. I've heard both. I just go with whatever I feel in the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of cool that that you did that that way. I I'm hard of hearing, and with my tinnitus, uh, tinnitus, I hear things weird anyway. So uh, I'm like, uh, if you want to pronounce it a certain way, we we'll go for it. We'll make that canon. That's generally my approach. Uh, some narrators love that, and some are like, I hate you. <laughs> Um, okay, so so there is going to be an audiobook. You don't know when yet. You have a publication date of August for book one. Do you have one in October, you said, for book two? Yeah. Are there any any general plans for three and onward, or do you not know? Uh, well, I think they're hoping to get uh, three and four out next year, but I'm not sure what time. I, I believe it could be, uh, could be summer, it could be fall. I, I'm just not sure. I think they'd want it sooner rather than later. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested. So I'll be reading. That's the one thing that with, with traditional publishing, um, sometimes if they go slower, and a lot of times it's not the author that's slow, it's the, just the publication process. Uh, you, you, you read a really good book and then you forget about it in the six months to a year before the next one. And then there's some series I've read. I'm like, why does that sound familiar? Oh, because I read book one and forgot about it. Uh, <laughs> I hate that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good that you have a, a plan. Um, speaking of a plan, so if someone is interested in this and they don't want to forget, uh, do you have like a newsletter that they could follow so they could track this? Uh... I have I have a web page and I have a Facebook page, but no, I don't actually do a newsletter. I, I, I'm told sometimes I need to do that, but I'm not sure what I'd say in the newsletter. Yeah, I'm still writing Hanavar. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I should maybe I should give that more thought. I treat my newsletter like you would treat your blog when you talked about in the pre-show about the blog you were writing for, was it uh, the last publisher where you were doing like sometimes an article? Yeah, they really wanted me to write uh, a blog almost every day. And I find like, you know, I'm taking a lot of time here. I could just be writing my writing my books to create a blog. I'm not sure anyone's reading. So Yeah, I came to that conclusion too. But so for me, I'll do like, uh, you know, a little bit about just my life in general, the, you know, not that I think they necessarily care. I'll talk about my garden, you know, what I'm cooking, the journey to get healthier. Uh, the part they do like is I'll tell a story from my time in the army. Uh, people tend to find my experiences in Iraq fascinating. You could talk about your karate lessons and some of the weapons you touched. Like that could be kind of cool. Um, yeah, and then you know what you're reading. How often do you? Um, how often do you? I do mine once a month, and then I'll you know what I'm reading because it's book recommendations. Because let's face it, like you could be the fastest author out there and readers can still read it faster than you can write it. I know yeah. authors that write a book a month that's 80,000 <laughs> words and the readers still outread their ability to write. So oh, yeah. Yeah. I just give them stuff that's like my book. If you like this, then this. And, 
you know, sometimes it's a, you know, I'll trade with other authors. Hey, we'll tell our audiences because I think we overlap. And sometimes I just do the Arns, uh, Arns and Barnes and Noble or Amazon. I almost combine those words, but uh, I'll scroll through their, their sections and just see what looks new and interesting. Uh, I might have to, now that Bain's putting their pre-orders up, I might have to add that to my scroll when I'm looking for what to recommend. You know, that's uh, not a bad idea. When I'm finished with this, I got to get this revision turned over. When I'm finished with the revision, maybe I'll uh, sit down and figure out how to set up a newsletter. Of course, first I'll have to recruit people to join the newsletter. But that, That's the easy part. If people are interested, they will because they like knowing, if nothing else, hey, the new book is out that you were clearly interested in, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cause you know, you can only, and you write large books. So, you know, the lag time makes a lot of sense. Like for most people, what you call one book, they would call three. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how large it really is. It's about 160,000 words. Okay. It feels longer when you give page counts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's still long. You're not quite Brandon Sanderson level. Like you're not going to kill anybody if you hit them with it, but you're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, speaking of newsletters and such, can you um, can you tell us how they can reach you if they wanted to find you on the Internet? Sure. You know, I'm still on Twitter. Um, I guess I go on every couple of days. I'm not that active on it, um, but that's at Howard Andrew John. I'm on Facebook and I think it's Howard Andrew Jones dot one. I'm on there a little bit more frequently. And then there's my website. Um, wait for it. Howard Andrew Jones dot com. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, I'm sensing a theme here, sir. Yeah, yeah. The Facebook's probably the simplest because I tend to check it a little bit more often. There's a couple of really cool uh, used book groups and historical groups and stuff that I uh, uh, follow on Facebook still. So, Okay. And this is the part, again, we've said it once and I'll say it twice, but uh, we'll remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books, people. It really does make a difference. And sometimes what other people hate, you will love and vice versa. So it is about helping you find the books that fit you and skip the ones that don't. So uh, so do your part, people. And I hear when you get a hundredth review, the author gets a unicorn. And I, for one, would like to know what a unicorn steak tastes like. So how do you take your steak? This is going to be our random question on the way out the door. Are you, are you a rare, bleeding... Charbroil, like how do you take your steak, sir? Medium rare. Okay, that's good. That's the perfect answer. Mine too. All right. I will link all of that stuff in the show notes, people. I'll link some of the stuff we talked about. I took notes as we were talking, so I know to throw that in there for you. Uh, it was just a fascinating discussion, so thank you for coming on. You can find us over on our link tree. It's linktree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, linktree backslash Blasters and Blades podcast, where we link our BitChute and Rumble. We appreciate all of our new listeners over there. Uh, for whatever reason, BitChute's hopping. With, uh, we, we tripled our audience count with the BitChute view. So thank you, new people. We, we're loving that you're digging it. Um, but, uh, so we can't link those on, on YouTube. They get real finicky about it. So we just did a link tree for you. It's got all the things we are on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We do answer those emails people. So don't feel Feel free to write it. If you, however, want to send hate mail, that would be Doc Seska at BlastersAndBladesPodcast.com because she just loves to read that. Just send it all to her. Um, you can find us on our Facebook 
group, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. We share the episodes, funny articles, funny memes. We discuss everything. We have all the fun, inappropriate jokes. Well, Facebook appropriate, you know, got to listen to the man. Um, but it's a lot of fun. So join us there if you're so inclined, or you can do the same uh, in the comments on any of the podcast platforms that you're you're viewing or listening. We have a website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on people, or you could support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes, people. And with that being said, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. Thank you for coming, Howard. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Hopefully we kept the uh, the nerding out on history to a minimum. <laughs> Here's uh, here, here's hoping uh, the, the overlord of the podcast, Seska, doesn't yell at us later. And with that, we are out.